that line, uh, actions speak louder than words. It's, it's used in a lot of movies. It's in a lot of books. I, I went and did some digging on that and found that the, uh, anybody know who the first person is to have said that exact phrase we know of? It's Abraham Lincoln actually said, actions speak louder than words. He was actually paraphrasing uh, a work by Gershom Bulkley, which I found out this morning is actually the name of one of our naval ships, uh, which, where he wrote, Actions are more significant than words. I don't know if the Navy ship has that as their mantra or not, but probably should. But he said actions are more significant than words. Abraham Lincoln takes it and says actions speak louder than words. But I think Mark Twain's probably perfected the statement because Mark Twain always had a way of taking something that you know and putting his witty, pithy spin on it. And he says, actions speak louder than words, but not nearly as often. Let that sink in for a little while, uh, because we all know it's easier to talk the talk than it is to walk the walk. These are all sort of uh, ways of saying, there's a difference between what you say and what you do. Uh, but this sentiment and idea actually well predates Lincoln and others. Uh, it goes all the way back to biblical times. Uh, back in the Old Testament, you see God looks at the people and he says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Like you say one thing, but you do another with your life. I can tell where your heart's actually at because of the actions and things that you do. Uh, and Jesus when then tells a parable, really, that kind of summarizes up this exact same point that we'll be looking at this morning. Uh, it's found over in Matthew uh, chapter 21, starting in verse 23, where he says this, uh, what do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first one and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. I will not, he said. But later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and, uh, and said the same thing. Go out and work in the vineyard. And he said, oh, I will, sir. But then he didn't go. So he asked the question, which of the two sons did what the father wanted? Well, the first they answered. And Jesus said to them, well, truly I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after this, uh, even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So this parable is found in Matthew 21, and sort of the, the gist of it is actions speak louder than words. Which son did what the father wanted him to do? Well, clearly the one who said he was going to go but didn't do it, didn't do what the father wanted him to do. The one who said he wasn't going to do it, then later changed his mind and went, that's the one who did what the father wanted him to do. It's the actions that really matter at the end of the day. It's more about what you do than what you say. That's the, sort of the point of this. The context for this parable, though, is this is the last week of Jesus' life. At uh, the beginning of the week, Jesus makes what's considered the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. This is where he's riding on the back of a, a donkey or a young colt, and he comes in, and people are throwing palm branches down on the ground before him as he comes in. Jesus had been staying over at his friend's house uh, where uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are there. Uh, of course, Lazarus, he has just recently re, you know, brought Lazarus back from the dead. Of course, rumors are all about this, and so people are hailing that this could be the coming of the Messiah. And so there's this really exciting triumphal entry that happens. Uh, Jesus comes in, and he surveys the temple, and then he comes back the next day, and he turns over the money changers' tables. i got to get a little side point here. I've heard people talk about, oh, yeah, you know, sometimes I lose it like Jesus did when, I was in the temp- when, in, when he was in the temple. Man, he just kind of went, no, sometimes I do that too. Before you want to compare yourself to Jesus, let's just stop for a minute. <laughs> Jesus comes in and he sees the temple. He goes home and he goes back the next day with the intention of doing it. It's not like he walked in there and just kind of snapped in a fit of rage. It was an intentional, thought-out act, and he was doing it for a deliberate reason. Well, and after he does that, of course, you can imagine that sets off the anger and frustration of those who were running the temple at the time with corruption. 
Jesus then has the audacity to go back the following day and teach. And this is where this takes place. As he has come in with this triumphal entry, which is sort of upset the religious leaders because everybody's giving him attention, and then he's come back, he's flipped over their corrupt business, and then he has the audacity to come in and teach. And I used to wonder, how is it that Jesus could get away with walking into the temple grounds and gathering a crowd around him and teaching uh, before anybody could sort of put an end to it, you know, at the very start? Like, how come they didn't watch, you know, how come they didn't see him come in and immediately stop it? It's because I didn't realize how big the temple mount is. Uh, This was a 37-acre complex, just for, for a picture, if you ever go out on our church property and look around from the, you know, from the street to the water behind us, uh, that's about seven acres. This is about five times the size of just our church property. This is a massive area, and there's all kinds of sort of uh, shaded areas and, and colonnades around the, the outskirts of it, so it'd be very easy for Jesus. In the same way, like, if there's other passages that talk about how Jesus was there in the temple courts, and they went to arrest him, but he got away from him, and they couldn't figure out where he went. I used to wonder, like, how could he get away from you? He was just in this small little place. It wasn't a small little place. It'd be like, it'd be the equivalent of like being out on the Washington Mall, you know, out in front of the, the Capitol building. It, it's a big area. And so Jesus is there teaching. A crowd gathers around him. Eventually, the religious leaders are alerted to the fact that that Jesus is back again, and that's who's over in that crowd over there in the middle of all those people. And so they go over there to investigate. And when they get over there, um, if you go before this story, they ask the question, basically, what right do you have to be here? Who gives you permission to be here? And they, they, the text says, they ask, who gives you the authority to teach? And he responds back to them. Now, by the way, for the authority to teach, in order to be a rabbi, it had to, it, there was at one point in time a rabbi had to confer that upon you, and then that got a little bit too out of control. And so then they said, no, the chief priest has to do it. Then people kind of realized there was some, cru- some corruption there. So ultimately, it came down to that the council of the elders of the Sanhedrin would have to approve somebody as a rabbi. And so these chief priests are coming in and basically saying, when did this vote take place that made you a rabbi, is really what they're asking. And Jesus says back, so when they ask about the authority to, to teach, he comes back, he goes, well, before I answer that, I'll ask you guys a question. Where did John the Baptist get his authority to teach? And they kind of huddle up for a minute, they're like, mm, well, if we say John the Baptist got his authority from God, you know, straight from heaven, he's going to cite that that's where he's getting his from, and that's going to kind of put us in a bind. If we come back, though, and say that John the Baptist didn't have any authority to teach because we didn't give him the authority to teach. Well, that's not going to go over well because pretty much everybody recognizes that John the Baptist was a prophet, and nobody's denying the fact that he was a man of God and a prophet like that of old. So they're like, well, either way, we're kind of in a bind here if we answer this question. So they come back and they go, we won't answer that. And Jesus says, well, I'm not going to answer your question either because the two are connected, aren't they? I mean, after all, Jesus got his authority from the same place John got his, directly from God. And so if you're not going to answer my question, I'm not going to answer yours, which I also have to pause and chase another little rabbit trail that has nothing to do with this morning's message, but I just have to mention it because we're here and sort of like, you ever been on vacation and you weren't really planning on going to see something, but like, you know, well, the Grand Canyon's only an hour away. We might as well go see it. So, all right. <laughs> so one little thing I have to put. This was a trap question. They asked Jesus a trap question. They were purposely trying to trap him into saying things he had said before that his authority came from the Father in heaven. And if he were to answer that, they would immediately either arrest him or seek to have him stoned and accuse him of blasphemy. Uh, Whereas Jesus recognizes trap questions when they come, and he doesn't answer trap questions. And the reason why I mention this is because so oftentimes a well-known pastor will go on a talk show or a news program, and every time they do, they're always asked trap questions, right? Trap question usually something like, well, 
am I to understand that what you believe is that only people who think the way you do and believe the way you do are going to heaven and everybody else is going to hell? Now, that pastor has two choices, and he's going to infuriate somebody no matter what he does. Now, if he recognizes it's a trap question and doesn't answer it boldly with theological doctrine, if he doesn't do that, then every pastor in the country, every Christian in the country is going to start throwing rocks at him and going, oh, he's watering it down. Oh, he's just a phony. Oh, he's not willing to make a stand for the truth. Oh, how can we ever follow this pastor anymore? On the other hand, if he comes out and says the blatant truth and says, yes, anybody who denies Jesus Christ is the Son of God is not going to have a relationship with him for all eternity. They're not going to go to heaven. Then what happens is instantly the host will pounce on you and take what is a message of God's love and grace and turn it into a message of condemnation, right? So either way, you're going to be hit on either side. And it happens all the time. And it infuriates me when a pastor is put in that situation and the Christian community then stones the guy for not answering the trap question. Uh, now, you could easily look at Jesus and throw a stone at him too, right? Come on, Jesus. You don't know where you got your authority from? What, you're not bold enough to go out and proclaim who you are? If you're going to deny your authority came from God, then maybe God's going to deny someday he knows you, right? No. That's, that's the verse people often say, well, if you're ashamed of God before, you know, before men, then God might be ashamed of you know, before him one day. That's not at all. It was a trap question. And you've got to recognize when there's a trap question. Sometimes you'll be at work or you'll be with your friends and somebody will ask you a trap question. You have to recognize when somebody's asking you a question only because they want to pin you down and somehow distort what it is that you believe or what it is that you proclaim. And so, recognize when it's a trap question and find a different way out of it other than being an idiot and walking into the trap. And Jesus does, does just that. He asks them back a trap question and they don't want to play the game. And then he tells them this parable. And so how does this parable connect with that? He says, <coughs> um, I'm also going to ask you a question. Uh, sorry, he asked that question. He says, well, what do you guys think? A man had two sons. He went to the first and said, go to the vineyard. And he says, no, I'm not going to go, but later he goes. And he asks the second son uh, to go, and he says he will, and then he won't go. So why does he tell this story to these people? Well, I want to kind of talk about what this story is all about. It's about the, the concept of actions speak louder than words. I was teaching on a similar concept years ago in Celebrate Recovery. Uh, Celebrate Recovery is a program we have here every Wednesday night. Uh, it's really all about, I, it, it's sort of a hyperly intensive focused church, church service is what I would call it. In other words, Everything we do at Celebrate Recovery is everything we do on Sunday morning, only there's an a, a intensity about it. In other words, it's for people who really want to get serious about the things that are keeping them from having a uh, great relationship with God. Uh, some people say, oh, isn't it just for drug addicts and, and alcoholics? No, it's for anybody with a hurt habit and hang-up. It's for any sin, uh, anything that's impacting your life in such a way that keeps you from enjoying the fullness that God has for you in your life. And so it's people who want to get really serious about that. And so in there, I was teaching on a lesson called The Turn. What we do at Celebrate Recovery is one week there's a testimony, the next week we do a lesson. And the lessons are all centered around the 12 steps. And so for each of the 12 steps of the recovery process, there's several lessons that go with it. And so the lesson I was teaching that morning was, was called The Turn. And that goes along with step three, which is we made a decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. And so it's talking about the turn, the decision to turn our lives and our wills over to the care of God. And to begin that lesson, I simply shared this little parable, little story, and it was this. Uh, three frogs are sitting on a log, and one decides to jump off. How many frogs are now on the log? <laughs> Somebody says, we don't answer questions in here because they're always trick questions. No. <laughs> I get that, but the only way to learn is to play along. So there's three frogs on the log, one decides to jump off. How many frogs are on the log? Three. 
Did somebody say four? No, no. Well, let's go through and discuss a little bit, and we'll come back and ask the question again later on in the service. It's all about a decision. The parable that Jesus tells is about a decision that he's asking that these sons are being asked to make. And the thing about a decision is you have to think about what goes into making a decision. Uh, and what's involved in making a decision at some point leading to that decision is what I would call a conviction. A conviction is a, a sense of understanding or a uh, deep drive as far as what you ought to do, uh, why you ought to do it, or how you ought to do it. Uh, the, the sense comes over you that there's an oughtness about what it is. There's, there's something in your life that is prompting a change, that, that there's something in your life that isn't as it should be and should be moved. Now, we also know from Scripture that it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict. In other words, what God is doing right now with his Spirit is, is he's working in your life to convict you, to move you, to push you to make a decision. Uh, to make a decision that will impact your eternal future, impact your temporal future, impact your life as it is right now. There are things in your life right now that do not, not, do, that, that do not line up with God's intention for your life, and so the Holy Spirit is continually trying to convict you, to pressure you, to move and make better choices in those areas. Now, what I try to do on Sunday morning is simply illuminate God's word. I want to open up the Bible to you, which I've done here this morning out of Matthew 21. I want to bring out God's word. I want God's word to, you know, I want you to hear what God is saying. And when you are in God's presence, hearing what God is saying, you're giving the Holy Spirit the maximum opportunity to begin to convict and move in your life. Which is why so many of you, as you're sitting here, you have this sense that you need to do something. Some of you will then maybe discuss things we talked about on Sunday morning on your way home. Some of you will begin to think about it all during the week. That's not me, that is the Holy Spirit. Or somebody says, Alex talked about this past, this past week, you're speaking right to me. No, the Holy Spirit was speaking to you. All we're doing is illuminating God's word and allowing the Holy Spirit to have the opportunity to say, this is for you, because the Holy Spirit convicts. And what that conviction does is it builds up a sense of pressure, if you will, like a, a, a sort of a spiritual or emotional pressure that makes you uncomfortable staying where you're at. Uh, whenever there's, there's sort of like you have, you have pressure put on you, you kind of want to move. If somebody's poking you, you feel that pressure, you want to move, um, and, and it's, it's this conviction that, gets you to, that it pushes you to move to make a change away from the decisions that you're currently making or the place your life is currently in. Now, the problem is, is there's a breakdown between that conviction and pressure to change and what actually happens. And, and that's what I really want to talk about this morning, and that's what Jesus' parable is really addressing. Because... Although you can realize, if you go through Celebrate Recovery, the very first step, almost everybody knows the first step, right? What's the first step? Well, admit. Well, denial's the issue, but the first step to recovery is not denial. Come on. You really ought to come on a Wednesday night sometime. Uh, I think the first step to getting better is denial. No, the first step is realizing denial's an issue. Of course, I think that's what you were trying to say. The first step to, to dealing with a problem is to admit there's a problem. This is where you admit that we become powerless over the addictions and compulsive behaviors in our life, and our lives have become unmanageable. Uh, step two is to recognize that there is a power greater than yourself, i.e. God himself, uh, that could restore your sanity. So once you've admitted there's a problem and you've recognized there is a solution, what should happen next? I've got a problem and there's a solution. I should probably try that solution for my life. Uh, and this is where I make a decision to turn my life and my will over to the care of God because I've got a problem, that's the solution. However, the breakdown happens between the admit I've got a problem, recognizing that God is a solution, and actually making any change. And what is that breakdown? The breakdown is our false understanding of what a decision is. 
You see, what ends up happening is that conviction pushes you to make a decision. And when instead of making a decision, what we do is we, uh, we, 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 we is what I would call a fake decision. It sounds like a decision. We think we've made a decision, but we haven't actually made a decision. We'll say things like, you know, I really ought to do that. I really... For instance, me just talking about Celebrate Recovery. There's some of you right now, instantly, you're like, you know, I keep hearing that. I really need to go this week. Have you decided to go this week? No. You have a conviction to. You've convinced yourself that you've decided to because you even said to yourself, you know, this week I'm going. Have you decided to go? No, you haven't decided to go. You haven't gone yet. But we, we've convinced ourselves that, that the decision really is already been made. This is why people sign up for a gym membership but never actually get in shape. <laughs> right? I get the conviction every time I try to go out and keep up with my kids and, come on, Dad, can you go out and play with us? Can you go out and play soccer with us? <sighs> I'm feeling this conviction that I really need to get in shape. So I decided I would sign up for a gym membership. Have I gotten in shape? No. Have I convinced myself I made a decision? Yes. But have I really decided anything? No, because I haven't done anything yet. We're all on this boat, and, and it's so easy when I talk about getting in shape, because getting in spiritual shape mirrors our physical shape so oftentimes. You know, I decided I'm going to start my diet. And you already know where this goes, but you never start your diet now, right? When do you start your diet? Monday, Monday next week, the week after Thanksgiving, oh, nope, the week after, oh, nope, the week after, New Year's is when I will do it, or you've got a birthday coming up, so I'm going to, you know, it'd be rude for me to show up at your birthday and not eat cake. I mean, what am I going to do? Be like, I'm sorry, I'm on a diet, I'm not going to eat. No, after your birthday, then I will start my diet. I've already decided this is what I'm going to do. No, don't, 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 don't look at me with some sort of disdain, like as if I'm not going to do it, because you don't know me. And <laughs> I decided I'm going to do it, and I am going to do it. No, you're not. <laughs> what happened is the pressure of conviction hit you. You made a fake decision to release the pressure, but you didn't actually do anything. So you might call it a decision, but it wasn't a decision because there's no change that's happened in your life. Which is why uh, I was reading a book, one of my favorite books is a book by Donald Miller called A Million Miles in a Thousand Years. And in there, he talks about the power of an inciting incident. An inciting incident uh, is something that sort of forces you to make a decision. It, it calls out your fakery and pushes you to go through with it. And so he talks about it this way. He says an inciting incident uh, in his story, so he talks about how this happens in movies that you watch and whatnot, is when a character goes through a door through which he cannot go back. In other words, he started that journey. It's when Luke jumps on the Millennium Falcon with Obi-Wan, there's no going back to Tatooine, or where, was that the, where he was at? I don't know. There's no going back after that. He's already on the thing, and he's already in the voyage at that point, right? Um, he says, it's where they are forced to change. And he goes on, he says, nobody wants to change. Nobody, because where we're at, although it may be uncomfortable, it's far more comfortable than actually changing. And so the comfort of the status quo is always a greater pressure on us than the pressure to change until there's an inciting incident. And so he talks about in his life, he felt this need to go and reach out to his dad, who he hadn't seen since he was a little kid. And so he types out on social media that, today I'm going to go see my dad. I'm afraid to do it. Ask me tonight how it was. And what he's doing is it's an inciting incident, because now he has all the social pressure of everybody expecting it. Whereas if he had just decided and didn't tell anybody, 
he probably could have weaseled his way out of it. Uh, I had a similar kind of thing. Years ago, I felt the need to get in shape. No comments. Um, <laughs> and what is, I signed up for a mud run uh, with a friend. Now, if you're going to do a mud run in November and you have a friend going, the last thing on earth you want is to be the guy out there. <laughs> no. It forced me to have to work out. Why? Because there was something I had to do. Also in the book, he talked about how he, he wanted to get in shape, and so he signed up for this trip to Machu Picchu, and it cost a lot of money, and so he put down the, the deposit. If you don't know anything about that, it's this hike, very, very long, strenuous hike to very, very high altitudes, and so you have to be in very good physical shape to do it, and so it forced him to get into shape. It's an inciting incident. In other words, it's, it's because my decision can't be made this instant I'm going to decide to do something which will force that decision to be made at a later time. Does that make sense? An inciting incident is something you can do right now, in this moment, that you can make that decision now, which forces the decision later, rather than procrastination. Because so often, our decisions are really just veiled procrastinations. I'm going to start it next week. I'm going to go next week. Or what happens, people go to CR, and they'll see, on chip night, there's a really neat thing that happens to chip night, which is the third Wednesday of every month. And on chip night, they celebrate people who made it one month, two months, three months, five months into this new path towards, towards uh, recovery. But the most exciting chip that's given out on chip night is the blue chip. Because that's where somebody has begun their journey. And so oftentimes people will come that night and the dispute, ah, I'm going to do it tonight. But then they don't. Others will go up and they will take the blue chip thinking that that means that they've now started a new thing but they actually haven't. They just want everybody to think that they had. The question is, is when have you really decided? That's the question. Which goes back to our question about the, the three frogs on a log. There are three frogs on a log. One decided to jump off. How many frogs are on the log? Hmm. Sometimes people ask me why we go over. We go over because we haven't quite gotten it yet. If we, get, <laughs> if we got it, I would have just concluded out the service. We would have gone on. Let me go back to Jesus' story and see if we can come back to it. Jesus tells a story about two sons. One says, I will go, but then he doesn't go. The other one says, I'm not going to do it, but then he goes. Which one does what the father wanted him to do? This one should be easier. Okay, okay. All right. We'll go son number one, says he's going to go, but doesn't go. Son number two, for the purpose of this story, says he's not going to go, but it goes. Which one does what the father wanted him to do? Number two. All right, we're all agree. Number two, right? Why? Now let me rephrase the question. Which one decided to go? Okay. All right. Which one said they were going to go? One. one. Which one decided to go? Two. Is it fair to say the first one made a fake decision? Yeah. Oh, I'm going to go. Sure. I really need to do that. I really ought to go to celebrate Covey. I really need to start going to church. I really need to give my life over to God. You know, I was just thinking the other day how much I need to start serving. You know, when you talk about how we give back a portion of what God's blessed us to help people around the world, you know, I really need to do that. That's the first son. I'm going to go. I'm really going to do this. You can count on me, Dad. I'll be there. The conviction of the Holy Spirit has moved that person to push them to a decision. They said, you know, I will do it. But they don't actually do it. They just faked a decision. 
They said something, but they didn't actually do it. The other guy sat there and was like, not for me, man. Relationship with God, mm-mm, nope. Going to celebrate recovery, uh-uh. You said that's a more intense version of this? Pfft, this is already enough I can handle. I don't want to do that, uh-uh. <laughs> it's hard enough for me to fake things in here. I don't want to go somewhere where it's going to get even harder to fake it. Uh-uh, I'm not doing that. Nope, 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 I'm good right here. But then Wednesday afternoon, starts thinking about it, and it's like, you know, unless I do something differently, I'm going to keep on getting what I've always gotten. And that's kind of insane. And it's not so much that I can't control the things that are going on. It's that they become unmanageable now. The unmanageable part is usually what gets people to go to celebrate recovery. You know, once I realize I can't handle things, who cares? As long as things are, you know, as long as, as long as I can still manage things, it's fine. Once it becomes unmanageable, now you start going, you know, I really need to go tonight. That's the person who's made a decision because I show up on Wednesday night. There's a difference between saying it and doing it. Saying it is not deciding anything. It's faking like you've made a decision. Doing it is when you've actually decided. Decision is the action. It's not thinking you're making the action, planning on making the action. The decision is where there's no more procrastination. It's you've actually done it. When somebody says, I have decided, like the old song says, to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back, it doesn't mean next week I'm going to do it. No, it's I've decided I'm doing it. This is done. It's happening. I'm beginning it right now. As a matter of fact, I'm doing it right now. I'm giving my life over to God. That's deciding. This is why I have a, such a hard time when people and, and like other pastors will, will write up these things, you know, a Sunday afternoon. Oh, we had 14 people decide to begin a relationship with Jesus this morning. There's always a piece in the back of my mind. I'm always like, did they though? I don't know if they did or not. I don't know. Because as I look at this story here, one son decided he was going to go and one son decided he wasn't going to go. But then the one who decided he was going to go didn't actually go. The one who decided he wasn't going to go actually went. And the one who really decided is not the one who said that they were going to do it, right? Which is why I, I always am scared to say and pronounce on any one of you that you've begun a relationship with Jesus Christ that will last for all eternity. I don't know until I see what you actually do. The further context of this story is on his way into the city, Jesus sees a fig tree, and he's hungry, and he goes over to the fig tree. Now, fig trees are supposed to give fruit year-round. Uh, most fig trees, at least 11 months out of the year, have fruit on them, which is why it's, you know, figs are such a unique tree. And he goes to a fig tree, because, you know, after all, if you're hungry, you know, apples aren't in season, oranges aren't in season, but figs, they're always in season. So he goes to the fig tree, but there's no figs on the fig tree. And he then curses the fig tree. Why? Because it's not what it ought to be. And the fig tree wilts up and dies. And that's, the, con that's the, the greater context of this, is that you know what something is by the fruit. And the fruit, you know, you don't see fruit the first year the tree has been planted. But once the trees begun to bloom, especially the fig tree, you always see the fruit. The fruit continues to come year-round. And if you've really chosen, if you've really decided to follow Jesus, people will see the fruit of that in your life. Because to truly decide it means that you've really done it. So when there's three frogs on a log and one decides to jump, how many frogs are still in the log? There's some people in this room who really want to get to lunch. Which son decided to go? The one who said he was going to go or the one who went? Why? Because there was an action there. 
decision means there's an action. Doesn't matter what you say, it matters what you do. And if a frog decides to jump and he actually decided it, he jumped. Jump is the decision. It's where you go, you know, you ever been on the edge of the pool and you got that kid who's never been, you never jumped off the pool before? Remember that moment with your kids and they're sitting there and they're sitting there? When have they decided to jump? <laughs> for those who didn't hear, he said, for when you push him in the back. No, no, no. They've decided to jump when? When they've jumped. And if there's three frogs in a log and one decides to jump, that means he's jumped. There's only two frogs now in the log. I'm just going to cut to the chase because you guys ain't getting it. And if you decided to follow Jesus, that means you're following Jesus. And if you're not, then you haven't decided anything. You've just fooled everybody around you and fooled yourself more than anybody. And that's what he's looking at the, the religious leaders that day. And he says, you're just fooling yourselves and fooling everybody else, but you're not fooling me. And you guys know flat out, if somebody says they're going to do it but doesn't do it, they haven't actually done it. And that's you. And there's other people out here, you're looking out on the spot with despising them. They're the tax collectors of sinners, the worst people in society. They've actually heard the message they're following after me right now. You don't think anything of them because they don't look the part or act the part, but they're actually following after me. If you've really decided to follow God, people will know it. I don't care what you say. It matters what you do. If you've really decided to follow, you've jumped. You've begun a relationship with him. Anything less than that, you're just a faker. You're just a faker. So we join with me to close our time in prayer. Father, my hope is that we truly will have decided to follow Jesus. Not that we're going to say it, not that we want everybody to think it, but that we truly have begun to follow after you. We've made that turn to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. I am truly turning my life and my will over to you. Father, there was a way that I thought was right, but now I submit that to you. I want to do things your way and in your time, and I will wait on you, and I will seek after you, and I will look to you. Father, please forgive me for my sins. Come into my life and let me be a part of yours. That we might have a loving relationship that will last for all eternity. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.